open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 18. And we've come into the fourth of these seven letters that Jesus dictates to John to write down and send to these seven specific churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That phrase tells me a few things. He who has an ear. If you have an ear here this morning, these letters are written specifically to you personally. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches is plural. He's not only writing to the church that he literally addresses in the letter, but he's writing to his church, the body of Christ. And as we go through these letters, you'll also notice that they actually profile church history. When these were being written, it was prophetic. It was looking to the future, what things would happen in the church. From our vantage point, most of it is history. So um, there's several ways that we can break down these letters, and truly there's several applications for them. So we're going to look at these in the church of Thyatira this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right. Now, this name Thyatira means continual sacrifice. It comes from two words, uh, the roots meaning continual sacrifice. And this will actually be pivotal to the prophetic implications of this letter. And we will revisit that. The major prophetic period and now looking back on church history, uh, was from about A.D. 590 to 1517. And this takes us up to the point of the Reformation with Martin Luther and all of the others. But as we will see, these last four letters all have references to Christ's second coming. What does that tell us? It tells us that these church systems that are outlined in the letters are still in the world today. And that will be important for us to understand. And while the true believers will be taken before the tribulation, it seems that these church systems that are referred to will still be around through the tribulation and up to his coming, his second coming. And we'll look at that as we move along. We're going to see Jesus in this letter speak to the rest in Thyatira, speaking of those who hold fast to the faith. It's a remnant. Okay, it's a remnant of true believers within this church system. The time frame there from 590 to 1517 covers what is often referred to as the medieval church. This time period is also known as the Dark Ages, and for very good reason. The church was holding services in Latin. It was a language that was not well understood by the common people. There was a lot of mystery and darkness involved. They actually went out of their way to keep the scriptures out of the hands of the common people. They went so far as to chain the priest's Bible to the pulpit. This is a lockdown. 
dark, dark ages. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us that when we take the light that is God's word out of the church, it becomes dark. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. If we keep the light hidden, we shouldn't be surprised when it gets dark. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans that we saw previously in Pergamos has crept over from that era into this era of Thyatira. But Jesus is going to address another major wrongdoing of the church in this period. And at this point, it shouldn't be a surprise to us, now we've come through three of these letters onto our fourth, that Jesus uses an Old Testament example to illustrate what this church is guilty of. It's Jezebel in this case, and we'll look at that. I also want you to be sensitive to the fact that in this letter, Jesus addresses specific individuals within this church system. Though the church of this era is sharply condemned by Christ, he addresses this remnant specifically in verses 24 through 28. I believe that no matter how bad the church gets, God has his remnant among us. And if you believe on Christ as your Savior, you are part of that remnant. Even in the Sardis era church, which we'll come to next, he has um, this remnant. And on throughout history, he will retain them. They are his sheep, and he keeps his sheep. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, I want to give you a little bit of background on Thyatira in the local sense. This was a literal church in a literal city in Asia Minor. It was one of the two northernmost churches, Pergamos and Thyatira. And it's believed that the city was founded by Alexander the Great. And it was eventually taken over by his general Lysimachus after Alexander the Great died. Lysimachus was later defeated by his rival, who incidentally was another general of Alexander, Seleucus Nicator. Thyatira in John's day was the juncture for three roads that led to Pergamos, Sardis, and Smyrna. And this city of Thyatira functioned as a sort of citadel city to guard those major cities from attacks from the north. War is in this culture. Coinage that was found in this city, in the ruins, bore the images of Hephaestus and Athena. And this suggests to historians that the city was involved in both metallurgy, Hephaestus, and some type of war, Athena. The city was heavily, heavily influenced by the presence of its guilds. We know that these guilds of craftsmen would band together to try to promote their trade and to protect each other's livelihoods. The guilds associated with metallurgy and textiles were especially prolific in this city. And this is evidenced in part by that coinage bearing the image of Hephaestus. And we also have this biblical account of Lydia, who is a woman 
from Thyatira who sold purple dye. In Acts 16.14, it says that Lydia was a seller of purple from Thyatira. And even today, in the modern-day city that sits where Thyatira used to sit, they are well-known for their dyeing, and that's kind of cool. This purple that they talk about is probably the Turkish red color. It's a scarlet type of color. Significant because that was the color of the Roman Empire. So this guild that was dyeing these fabrics red or purple was very wealthy because the Romans would buy their expensive dyes. So they made money that way. These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, speaking of the doctrine of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Back up to verse 18. These things says the Son of God. Jesus, to this church, decides to reveal himself as the Son of God. This is how he identifies himself. Nowhere else in the book of Revelation does Jesus use Son of God to describe himself? Several times he uses Son of Man, and several times he uses the Lamb of God, but never again does he use the Son of God. He does not reveal himself as the Son of Man or the Son of Mary, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. And of course, this description points towards judgment. Eyes like a flame of fire speak of his penetrating gaze. He knows intimately everything that goes on in his church. And down in verse 23, Jesus says, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And that points to the same characteristic. 
he makes another reference to that fact that he has close tabs on what is going on. If you've seen the movie Ocean's Eleven, uh, the casino manager that they're trying to break in and steal from, he knows exactly what's going on in his casino all the time. Okay, so I thought of that. (laughs) And his feet like fine brass. And we know that brass speaks of judgment all throughout Scripture, from the tabernacle to the brass serpent in the wilderness with Moses, it's always speaking of judgment. Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, I want to make sure that you see this, because it's easy for these good things to get completely overshadowed by the scathing accusations that we're going to see in a second. So pay attention to these good things that this church has going for them. Before Jesus lays his criticism down for them, he gives them a commendation. And this is what he says. He commends them for five things. Works, love, service, faith, and patience. And he says concerning their works, they're getting better and better. The last are greater than the first. Concerning your works, they're even improving. We know that works are a credential of a believer. James writes, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Faith comes with works. We don't work for salvation, we work from salvation. There were a good many saints during the Dark Ages that stood firmly for the faith, and they demonstrated their own faith by their works. And we'll see a couple of these men pop up later in this study. Works, love, service, faith, and your patience. That passage in James 2 that I quoted from deals with the faith and the works together. But we actually see the rest of these commendations in that passage as well. Patience you have to infer but the other ones are explicitly stated. Of course, James talks about service and love in his example of the brother or sister who is naked and destitute of daily food. If we see a brother in that condition, that means another Christian, then we don't do anything about it, then we have not love. There's no love in us to let a fellow Christian live that way. Do we actually love them if we just pass them by? Now, patience, I said, is not explicitly mentioned. But James does refer to Abraham. And we know from Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, that Abraham practiced patience. He was patient in coming into the inheritance that God had for him. So take that for what it's worth. The bottom line is that this church in Thyatira was doing well in these areas. And these are very important areas. 
And I don't want us to overlook this as we move on. Then Jesus says, nevertheless, don't we hate to hear that word? You get called into your boss's office. He says, hey, great job with that report. Your customer service has been on point this week. Nevertheless, oof. nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, to understand this accusation against the church, we need to go back and understand who this Jezebel was. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, and he was a king of the Israelites. And 1 Kings 16.30 tells us that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So this was a bad dude. Okay, King Ahab was the worst of the worst. No doubt his malevolence was capped off by marrying this woman Jezebel. And she comes into this kingdom and brings her idolatry with her. And this is a problem. In this case, Jezebel brought the kingdom, the worship of Baal, with other pagan gods, Astarte, Baal, And she also sought to exterminate the prophets of Yahweh, of God. Together with her dear husband, they ushered in the worst period in the Old Testament. Evil, evil people. Now there's a key piece of Jezebel's story that we don't want to miss out on. 1 Kings 21 gives us the account of a man named Naboth and also the vineyard that he owned. King Ahab wanted it because it was close to his house, and, you know, who doesn't like to add on to their land? It was a beautiful vineyard, but he went to Naboth and asked for it, and Naboth refused to sell it to him. King Ahab went so far as to say, hey, I'll give you a trade, give you another vineyard that's better, or I'll just give you money for it. Naboth refuses to sell the vineyard. Now, being the extremely manly ruler that Ahab is, he goes home and has a hissy fit. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And I'm not, not exaggerating. It even says it in Scripture. 1 Kings 21.4 says, So Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And so Ahab lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. This evil guy, king of Israel, goes home and has a hissy fit. I don't know. So what does his loving wife Jezebel do? She walks in, sees him in this condition, and she says to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she has a plan. So Jezebel goes to work, doing what she does best. She writes some letters in Ahab's name, and she sends them to the elders and the nobles that live in the city with him, with Naboth. And this is her directive. Proclaim a fast 
and seat Naboth with high honor among the people, and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So this woman is effectively setting up Naboth to be condemned as a blasphemer of God. That's what she's doing. So God sends his prophet Elijah. We all are familiar with the man Elijah. He sends him to confront Ahab in the vineyard. And Elijah was commanded to deliver this message that said, Have you murdered and also taken possession? In the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. A scathing, uh, condemning message to Ahab. So God brings a condemnation upon Ahab, Jezebel's husband, for killing to take possession of Naboth's land. Now, if we look back at the Dark Ages, this dark period of church history, will come to a series of horrific events. These were a series of tribunals that are known today as the Inquisitions. And just that word makes us shiver a little bit. We don't like it. And it was an awful, awful period for the church. And I do not stand up here and tell you that you know, church history has been all unicorns and rainbows. The church is messy. Whenever you have people, it gets messy. This is one of those instances. And just for your information, historians generally make distinctions between four time frames and locations of the Inquisitions. And these are the medieval or Episcopal Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, the Portuguese Inquisition, and the Roman Inquisition. The Inquisitions as a whole were instituted by Pope Innocent III, and he was in office from 1198 to 1216. And Pope Gregory IX saw these tribunals, these Inquisitions, through. So they were started by one man and came to a completion with another. And since the church had merged with the state, the act of heresy against the church was now a state offense and it was considered treasonous. So heretics, instead of just being excommunicated like they were before, were now liable to torture and death for treason. The stated goal of the Inquisitions was to secure and maintain doctrinal uniformity within the Roman Catholic Church and within the Holy Roman Empire as a whole. But we begin to see a different incentive being realized. So during this time of the Inquisitions, everyone was required to inform against heretics. Anyone suspected of heresy was liable to torture without knowing the name of his accuser. Proceedings for these tribunals were in secret. The victims, or the quote-unquote heretics, whether they were or not, their property was seized and divided between the church and the state. You see the incentive for a guilty verdict? Their property was taken from them 
and given to the church. Now, we should be starting to piece together this puzzle here. Jezebel, referred to in this letter of Thyatira, wife of Ahab, Jezebel kills and takes land from Naboth. The church condemns heretics, kills them, takes the land from them. Jezebel was an inquisitor. This persecution led to the formation of certain pre-reformed groups. You'll hear these in church history now and again, but they're largely unknown to most people. When I say pre-reformed, I'm talking about the idea that the Catholic Church was getting out of hand. These groups sprouted up from that common sentiment. And there were a couple of guys that kind of let these movements take off, but they didn't really have quote-unquote leaders. And we'll look at these two groups real briefly. They were similar in many ways, but not exactly the same. So for our purposes, we can consider these groups to be pre-reformed. They're leading up to the Reformation, but they themselves are not actually reformed. Um, I thought that I actually made up that term pre-reformed, but I Googled it and somebody already had. So, <laughs> The use of that term recognizes that these groups were the early precipitates derived from a realization that certain Catholic practices were unscriptural. And these two groups took the brunt of the Inquisition in the early 1200s as Pope Innocent III ordered these two groups to be exterminated, literally wiped out. What was Pope Innocent III's reason for ordering the extermination of the Albigenses and Waldenses? They defied his absolute authority. That's his reason. Innocent III held to the doctrine of papal infallibility, that the Pope was infallible. The Pope was on the same level as God's word, infallible. And if you denied that, you were considered a heretic. You were liable to this torture and killing. And this is extra information for you. Um, the church thought that it was unethical to spill blood. So they would torture in such a way that you wouldn't bleed. But they were still torturing you. They also wouldn't torture you twice, only once. They thought that two times, man, that's out of control. They would torture once until either death or a confession. So what are you going to do? Ah. Innocent III was the most powerful pope in history. I would go so far as to say he was the most powerful man in history. Practically speaking, every king in Europe obeyed the will of this one man. And Haley's Bible handbook which, by the way, is a wonderful resource for everyone. It's got a little bit of everything in there. 
Haley's Bible Handbook says that the Albigenses, quote, preached against the immoralities of the priesthood, pilgrimages, worship of saints and images. They completely rejected the clergy and its claims. They criticized church conditions. They opposed the claims of the Church of Rome, and they made great use of the scriptures. They lived self-denying lives and had great zeal for moral purity. That's the Albigenses. Again, quoting from Haley's Bible Handbook, the Waldenses, quote, opposed clerical usurpation and profligacy, denied the exclusive right of the clergy to teach the gospel, rejected masses, prayers for the dead, and purgatory, taught the Bible as the sole rule of belief and life. Their preaching kindled a great desire among the people to read the Bible, end quote. That sounds pretty spot on to me. Now, I will say that I don't agree with everything these groups did. They did overemphasize the ascetic principle or the strict reining in of your physical desires. So they actually lived in poverty on purpose. And so they took some things too far, and I'll admit that. But they did not go to the Pope as a source of authority. Okay? This was commendable. These were the guys that the so-called vicar of Christ, or the representative of Christ on earth, the Pope, these are the guys that he ordered to be exterminated. The ecumenical church has not always taken the side of born-again believers. And I want you to think about that. The church has not always taken the side of believers. Now, history is showing this plainly. So don't be caught off guard when sometime in the future, I hope I'm not here for this, sometime in the future, the church again will turn against born-again believers. And we will see the denominational churches come against the remnant. Don't be surprised. And this topic will inevitably come back up later in our study of Revelation. So I'm not going to go too far into that rabbit trail now. And we've also covered a lot of ground. So we're going to circle back around to this character of Jezebel. We're going to focus on her for a second more. We've seen that she had the tendency to take land by inquisition, but something else I mentioned in passing was her solidifying the pagan worship in Israel. What she did was she brought her idolatrous practices into her marriage with Ahab, the king. And in this local congregation at Thyatira, the believers were being pressed from every side with idol worship. You remember the guilds that I mentioned at the beginning. They were a major force in the city. And historians believe that Thyatira actually contained the largest presence of guilds in Asia Minor. These guilds had a standard practice of choosing a patron god to represent 
their guild or their trade. So they would put this patron god up, they would worship it, venerate it, and hoped that it would help them prosper their trade. And so this worship, this veneration, involved so many different kinds of immorality. When these Christians would get saved in Thyatira, being part of these guilds, they would have a choice to make. Do I cut myself off from this trade, from this guild, and subsequently from the worship of this pagan god and possibly lose my livelihood? Or do I serve Christ and also, you know, on the side, I'll just worship this god so that my coworkers will stay happy and so that they'll prosper our trade? What do you do in that situation? Jezebel apparently was teaching them that it was okay to mix the worship of God and the pagans. That woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And from history, we know that that probably relates back to these guilds and the pressure that they put on the Christians. So these Christians could no longer pay homage to their patron gods if they were to serve Christ. And the co-workers, I'm sure, put immense amounts of pressure on them. Come on, man, quit with that Jesus stuff. What are you thinking? Just come worship in the temple, go off, and we'll keep our jobs, you keep your job. Everybody's happy. But this woman... And I believe that it was probably a literal woman in the local church at this time. We don't know that her name was actually Jezebel. Uh, That's just the example that Christ uses. But it's very likely that this woman was actually spreading false doctrine in that church. So if you look at the church in the Dark Ages, the influence and introduction of pagan practices will astonish you. And for the sake of time, we won't go into each one, but some of these practices include, starting with Constantine's adoption of the pagan priest title, Pontifex Maximus, and kissing the Pope's foot, worshiping of images and relics, use of holy water, canonization of dead saints, fasting on Fridays and during Lent, celibacy of the priesthood, prayer beads, the Inquisition, sale of indulgences, transubstantiation. By the way, um, transubstantiation is the belief that the communion bread and wine are actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Not symbolic, but literally the body and the blood. The name Thyatira I mentioned, comes from the roots, meaning sacrifice and continual, which points to this dogma of transubstantiation. In every Mass, every week, the priest would give communion. And that was the literal re-sacrificing in their minds of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood. It was a continual sacrifice. It was made over and over. We know from scripture 
that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was made once and for all. Once for all time and once for all who will believe. That never needs to be repeated. Adoration of the wafer, which was actually the communion bread. That's the wafer. Adoration of the wafer, Bible forbidden to lay people, cup forbidden to people at communion, doctrine of purgatory decreed, doctrine of seven sacraments affirmed, the Ave Maria approved, and it goes on past this time period. So the major prophetic implication of this Thyatira-era church ends in 1517, but the influence of this church system continues on. Who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. During the first apostolic conference, and I'm calling it a conference to differentiate from the councils that came later. During that first apostolic conference, they decided not to burden the new Christians with anything beyond what is absolutely necessary for a believer to abstain from. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. These are absolutely necessary. These are the only things that they were concerned with burdening the new Christians with. And what is Jezebel teaching? To commit sexual immorality and the worship of these pagan gods. And what else? Eat things sacrificed to idols. Two of the things that they listed in in their conference. (coughs) And then this Jezebel comes along calling herself a prophetess. I want you to notice that God does not call her a prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches that it's okay to mix Jesus with pagan practices. And what she was doing, in effect, was proclaiming that she had the same apostolic authority as those apostles who wrote the books of the New Testament. Now we have no longer sola scriptura. We have scripture and the word of this woman. Scripture and the word of the Pope, the infallible Pope. Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Christ has given and is still giving ample opportunity to this woman Jezebel to repent. But she is unwilling to do so. And the language here speaks of a condition that is still ongoing. She did not repent, and she is not in the attitude of repentance. She did not repent and still is unrepentant. In other words, it's her will not to repent. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. 
Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. So now, Jesus ascribes the consequences of her actions and a way out by repentance. Just turn back. Just repent. Whatever it is. Jesus ascribes a consequence and a way out. And now he addresses both her, Jezebel, and all those who follow after her teachings. And he says, commit adultery with her. And of course, this is broader than just sexual immorality, than just a physical intimacy. This adultery speaks of spiritual fornication, the mixing of pagan and Christian. Into great tribulation. Interesting choice of words from Jesus there. So is he talking about the period of great tribulation? It's hard to be dogmatic on that, but I think so. And in verse 25, he says, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he's talking specifically to that remnant here. So we can conclude that he's talking about coming for his church, which is distinct from Jesus coming with his church. There are two events that have yet to happen. The rapture, which is Jesus coming for his church, and then his second coming when he comes with his church to set up his millennial kingdom. This coming for the church would take them out of the world before the tribulation. Now, the system, this church system, is still in place on the world after the rapture. Not everyone involved in this church system is saved. If Christ condemns only some people in this system to be cast into great tribulation, that indicates that some people will not be cast into great tribulation. To his remnant, he says, hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. I will kill her children with death, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. If you spread lies and idolatry, you'll be repaid for that. If you, like the remnant, hold fast to good works, love, service, faith, and patience, you will likewise be repaid for that. And please note that we are not talking about working for our salvation here. I said earlier, salvation is a free gift. We don't work for our salvation, we work from our salvation. And you can reference James if you need some clarification on that. Verse 24, now to you I say, speaking to the remnant, And to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, the doctrine of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. 
and again, extra information. The root of the word in Greek for depths is the same root that is used in burden. It's wordplay. Jesus has a sense of humor, even in this very condemning letter. As they say, I will put on you no other burden. So Jesus, again, is addressing this remnant, and they're within this corrupt church system. And no matter how bad things get around us, God will always have his true believers. He's reserved people to serve him. In 1 Kings 19.18, God responds to Elijah's concern that he was God's last prophet and everyone else was trying to kill him. He was a little bit paranoid, but God responds in this way. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God knows his children even in the midst of a dark, dark place. And I think I know what you're thinking. At this point, are my Catholic friends saved? That's a good question. And while I can't search the hearts and the minds of people like Jesus can, I can tell you that God knows his flock. I will also say that one cannot believe two contradictory statements and both be true. It's a logical fallacy. It's called the fallacy of inconsistency. One cannot believe that Faith in the finished work of Christ is the way to salvation and believe that penance, communion, prayers to saints, prayers to Mary, indulgences, and lighting candles are effective for salvation. You cannot believe those two things at the same time. It is truly a logical fallacy. So, if an individual truly believes that Jesus Christ came to the earth. He was crucified. He rose again. And in that work, defeated death, defeated Satan, and anyone who believes on Jesus for salvation is saved. If you believe that, welcome in. God will welcome you with open arms. But if you believe that you have to crawl on your knees for miles, that you have to pray to deceased saints, that you have to pay the church money to get into heaven, come back to Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that is necessary. And my heart breaks for the Catholic Church because it has deceived so many people. And I hate to see it, but the answer is here. But hold fast what you have till I come. Jesus laid upon them no unnecessary burden. Only hold on to what you have. He said, I'm coming for you. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes... And keeps my works until the end.
To him I will give power over the nations. And keeps my works until the end. You're thinking, man, I just thought you said we didn't have to work for our salvation. Now he says, keep my works. What am I going to do? Well, we can look to scripture to figure out what he's referring to. John 6, 28 tells us, Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. Believe in Christ. That is the work of God. Have faith in him unto salvation. To him I will give power over the nations, the overcomer. This is our promise to the overcomer in this letter. This temporal power that the Vatican has chased for centuries, kingdoms, wealth, all these years, that has been in Christ. And we see at the end that we will rule with him over the nations. They wanted to rule the nations, and I think that in one point in the future, they probably will. They probably will have their time in the sun, but they won't be there for long. Because this stone cut without hands, referred to in Daniel 2, comes to break up their kingdom, shatters it to pieces, and this mountain grows in its place and covers the entire earth. This is speaking of the kingdom that Jesus Christ will set up on earth. He gives to he who overcomes power over the nations. 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. This verse is quoting from Psalm 2.9. And it also harkens back to that dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, when the final worldly kingdom of clay mixed with iron is crushed by the stone cut without hands. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, just like that dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Also I have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus will give the overcomer the morning star. What is this morning star? Revelation twenty-two sixteen tells us. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus literally says, I am the morning star. Our text this morning in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Jesus will give us himself. And what a beautiful picture that is. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the first letter that we see. The last three will follow in suit, but this is the first one we've come to 
where the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter that we just looked at. Rule them with rod of iron, give power over the nations to the overcomer. That's in the body of this letter. The first three letters contain that promise to the overcomer in the postscript, the PS, if you will. And that'll be significant later. So we've come through this letter to Thyatira, and we went all over the place. But what can we pull to apply personally? Well, Thyatira was a church that tolerated false teachers and sin. They tolerated these things. We must guard ourselves and what has been entrusted to us from those false teachers that seek to distract us from Christ. If they can get our attention pulled away from Christ, we're done for. The writer of Hebrews says that we should keep our gaze fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes up. Keep Christ as the center point of what you're focusing on. We have to guard ourselves, make sure that nothing distracts us. Those in Thyatira fell into Jezebel's trap of idolatrous practices, sexual immorality, no no doubt, spiritual fornication. Are we tolerating some sort of sin in our lives? Are we letting something in our lives fester? A healthy immune system is going to get a virus out. It's going to seek it out and kill it so our bodies can remain healthy. In the church, are we letting false teachers, people bringing another gospel, are we letting them come in and fester? Or are we identifying them and dealing with them? These are all questions that we need to reflect on. Are we letting sin into our lives? Are we letting it run the show? Even if you're not letting it run the show, is it there and is it distracting me from my walk with Christ? Good things in the world can still distract you from Christ. They take up too much of your time, too much of your attention. Don't let these things get in the way. Don't let them mix with Jesus. The mixture in Pergamos. Per means mixture. Gamos is marriage. Pergamos. It's a mixture that resulted from a marriage between the church and the world. And that mixture was carried over into Thyatira. And it was solidified. It became doctrine. And you were persecuted if you didn't put your stamp of approval on what they were telling you. Do not let the sin, let the false teachers, false ideology creep in and fester. Let us be extremely aware of what is going on in our lives this week. And let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer.
Thank you.